former Postal Service mail carrier claiming religious discrimination against the Postal Service. He's going to get a day in court and not his first. The former employee claimed USPS violated his rights when it disciplined him for not working on Sundays. The Supreme Court heard the case but sent it back to a federal appeals court for that final ruling. Now, that ruling could have a major impact on the USPS package business and therefore its long-term financial health. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins us with the latest. And before we get into the specific ruling, just if you would, Jory, review what's going on in this case. Sure. So this case centers around Gerald Groff, an evangelical Christian and a former carrier in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He observes Sundays as a day of rest. And for the longest while, this was not a problem working for the Postal Service. They for a while we're not working on Sundays. That all changed in 2013 when they struck a deal with Amazon to deliver packages on Sundays. And that is a huge line of business for the Postal Service. This was a point of contention for Groff. He said he was not going to work Sundays. The Postal Service, the post office that he worked at, they really went out of their way to find accommodations for him. From their point of view, they tried to get other carriers to carry out those Sunday shifts. Things eventually didn't work out. Groff quit the Postal Service in 2019, but he had claimed that his rights were violated, and in this case now appears before the Supreme Court. All right. And the central question the Supreme Court was actually weighing in on, what is that question? So it's a very narrow question here. It goes back to precedent that the Supreme Court settled 50 years ago in another case, Transworld Airlines versus Hardison. It set this standard for religious accommodation, the bar that employers have to meet to say that Uh, an accommodation is unreasonable for them to meet. It's a de minimis standard, which in Latin is minor or kind of trivial. And so anything above that standard is, is something that an employer shouldn't be obligated to meet under the law. And so this is something that the Supreme Court was wrestling with. We heard Justice Samuel Alito say, well, in terms of those costs that the employer has to show, it's really just a question of dollars and cents. The overtime an employer has to, you know, occur, incur for, you know, dealing with an employee in a situation. Justice Sonia Sotomayor said, well, it's really not just the costs. It's about how many employees are available. The Postal Service is a big employer, but when you look at the individual post office, in this case, it was a very small one, and so you're putting a real burden on the other employees. Right. I suppose in a place like New York City or Los Angeles, you probably have enough staff to juggle around so that if someone really can't or won't work on a Sunday or a Saturday, then you can accommodate them. But Lancaster, Pennsylvania is a small metropolitan area. It is, is, and that really came down to uh, what the Supreme Court ruled in this case. All right. So then this is going to be for this lower court to decide. And how had the lower courts ruled in the first place? Because there was a decision there that made it go to the Supreme Court. It did. In that earlier case, the Third Circuit for the U.S. Court of Appeals, they ruled in favor of the Postal Service. They found that while this may not be a significant cost for the Postal Service as a business to take on, it really did have to deal with those costs in terms of that local point of view, in terms of the costs imposed on other carriers at that post office and something that the Solicitor General arguing on behalf of the Postal Service said that with Groff's accommodations, one carrier quit, another transferred to a new post office, and a third filed a union grievance. So yes, there was definitely a feeling amongst the workforce that this was a really heavy 
cost and a burden for them to deal with. Right. So it, it was above that de minimis standard, and therefore the Postal Service would not have to comply with this. And the Supreme Court said, decide again, sending it down to that appeals court. All right. And was this unanimous on the Supreme Court's part? It was unanimous, and that's quite rare these days for the Supreme Court to uh, hand down that kind of ruling. They did clarify things, the de minimis standard. They are now rephrasing that as being a substantial increased cost for employers to bear. They are not throwing out any of that 50 years of precedent here. They still say that that holds and EEOC guidance around religious accommodations, that largely is going to stay intact here. Despite that unanimous ruling, we did hear from both sides of the court in two concurring opinions here. We heard from Justice Alito saying that this EEOC guidance is going to stay in place. Not a huge amount has changed, but they are really narrowly redefining what that bar is for employers. And then we heard from Justice Sotomayor and Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson in their separate opinion. They said that USPS in this case can say that a cost is being put on the workforce, and that's something that they can claim here in this particular case. Interesting. Alito and Sotomayor and Brown-Jackson have concurring opinions, but probably by different avenues. One is the effect on the workforce, which would be something you would think would be higher in the mind, perhaps, of Sotomayor and Jackson. And the burden on business financially might be higher in Alito's look at this. But they came to the same conclusion. Interesting. All right. So now, with respect to the Postal Service's bottom line, if it is ruled at some point that they have to accommodate in this manner, how would that affect the Postal Service writ large, do you think? Well, it's really hard to overestimate how big a deal this Amazon contract is for the Postal Service. We as the public don't have specifics in terms of the dollar value of that, but this is a really substantial line of business for them. When the Postal Service inked this deal in 2013, they said that they were really going through some of the worst of their financial issues. They finished 2012 with a $16 billion net loss. That's pretty bad for them. And what we heard more recently from Postmaster General Louis DeJoy as part of his 10-year reform plan, he says that a core of that business, uh, he says a core of that plan is to increase the package business. And that's going to be tough if they're going to have to pay more in overtime or if they lose this appeals case, uh, have to really rethink how they're going to carry out the terms of this contract. I am confident that the men and women of the United States Postal Service will raise their game to overcome the obstacles and thinking of the past to continue to improve our operational performance and capture our fair share of the competitive but growing package delivery business. People want it tomorrow if you order today or even maybe this afternoon on a Sunday. What is the official word from the Postal Service about the Supreme Court remanding here? What they have told us is that they are pretty confident that they will once again uh, win the case in terms of what the third uh, Circuit Court of Appeals has to say about this case. They won the last time it appeared before that court. And what the court ruled in that moment was that, yes, again, the uh, burden was on the rest of the workforce. It really reduced morale. Uh, making this accommodation was pretty substantial for the Postal Service. And so they ruled in favor of them. So they say that, once again, things are probably going to even with this new bar that they have to meet, demonstrate this is, again, the case, that this was a high bar for them. This was a uh, tough thing for them to accommodate. And have we heard from Gerald Groff? What does he say about the ruling? You know, he's also claiming victory in this case. He 
and his uh, lawyer representing him during oral arguments. They both said that this is a victory for religious liberty and that this is a win for uh, folks like him in terms of workplace rights and having that flexibility to observe a Sabbath. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of looking like magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in looking like magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, 
How has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have you mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? 
He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.